Welcome to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cranmer Hall Durham, where we explore some of life's big questions and try to join the dots between theology, church and the world. I'm your host, Philip Plimming, Warden of Cranmer Hall, and it's my privilege to bring you some of the most interesting theological thinkers today. If you enjoy Talking Theology, do subscribe at your favourite podcast provider. Follow us on Twitter at Talking Theo and share on social media. Thanks for listening. Now, on to today's episode. What does psychology have to say about identity and belonging in the world and the church? How does scripture challenge the idea that belonging to one another involves being homogenous? How do stories of people being excluded within the church undermine the gospel? Why does pursuing belonging require transformation rather than staying the same? And how do we see the Holy Spirit at work in the church? taking us on a journey of authentic belonging. Welcome to this episode of Talking Theology. In today's show, I'll be talking to Dr. Sanjay Pereira. Sanjay is a cognitive ecclesiologist and works as Archbishop's Advisor on Minority Ethnic Anglican Concerns for the Church of England. And our question today is, why is the church called to embody the good news of belonging? Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Sanji Pereira, welcome to Talking Theology. Hi, thank you for inviting me. I'm really excited to be here, especially given the extraordinary guests you've had before. I'm really excited. We're thrilled to have you, Sanji. You describe yourself as a cognitive ecclesiologist, which sounds fantastic. Can you tell us what that is? And perhaps you give us a bit of an overview about your journey and your career so far, and in particular, your very interesting role and important role as the Archbishop's Advisor for Minority Ethnic Anglican Concerns. What does that involve? So a cognitive ecclesiologist, my mother would probably say somebody who's deeply confused about which discipline she's following. But I did my PhD in cognitive psychology, but it was interdisciplinary. And so there was a great deal of theology within it. And As a result, it's a cognitive psychologist studying psychological phenomena in religious or ecclesial spaces. So my job, my new job of 16 weeks now, I'm still fumbling about the dark. Every day is different. And having started this new job in the middle of a pandemic, I don't think I have actually met anyone I work with, perhaps other than Archbishop Stephen. At this sort of time of great change, I've spent in the middle of a lockdown. Working in the pulsing heart of the church has been incredible. Of course, this doesn't mean I don't have sort of difficult, exhausting, terrible days. But I must say, I didn't expect such extraordinary opportunity and beauty working for the Church of England in the middle of a lockdown. Sanji, your research over the years has explored themes of racialization and ethnic identity in the Church of England from a variety of perspectives, whether those of newcomers or experienced clergy. Tell us how you landed on that particular field of research and just give us a sense of the specific work you've done in that area. So I started off in my undergraduate years, just before I came to university when I was a teenager, my best friend died. He got on a train on a sunny July afternoon alongside clearly a suicide bomber. About 400 people were severely wounded that day and he, along with 64 other civilians, died. 
So being a particularly geeky, naive teenager, I suppose I dealt with the pain of bereavement by searching for answers in books. I wanted to understand why such horror existed. So I studied theology in my undergraduate years. And when the paradigms of theodicy didn't quite answer all of my questions, I turned to psychology and I transformed what was a theology, a single honours to a combined honours degree with psychology. And then I went on to do a PhD, which I took nearly a decade to complete. And again, it was a very interdisciplinary PhD. I drove my PhD surprise uh, completely mad because I was sort of jumping around neurology and linguistics and political science. And it boiled down to the brokenness of the fallen world because the real ills of this world happen because we always resort to a cognitive economy. So our survival instinct, our fight or flight response, particularly when we feel threatened, leave us wanting to label people quickly and identify them as friend or foe. The way people look, discernible differences like language or culture or obvious political ideologies or or faith alliances are very easy ways of categorizing people. So 23 years later, after more than a decade of doctoral work and teaching psychology, I realized that I had done most of my cognitive psychological research in ecclesial spaces. I thought I had abandoned theology as a subject, but because it was so immersed in theology, I found that what I thought was a psychology PhD was really turning out to be a theology PhD to the extent that my internal, who was um, an expert in decision-making in apes, said, why don't you submit half of that as a separate PhD in a theology department? So let's look at those theological questions if we can, because I know the work that you've done and in your writing, you return regularly to the themes of marginalisation and belonging as two key themes. Can you just guide us through, therefore, the theological weight of those themes and how you understand them? Because the theological importance is one that's come back to you again and again, as you said, you did your doctoral research. Just talk us through those themes and their theological significance. I'm very aware that these days it's become fashionable to despair of identity politics. And there tends to be a straw man discourse on any kind of justice initiative around a particular ethnosocial or faith-based group identity, the nature of defensive ideologies or defensive identities, which again stem from the same identity political phenomena, is you know for people to get testy about it. Those people who find belonging uncomfortable or it, a contested reality for them, talking about it seems an excessive vanity to sort of majority groups. And at worst, it's an outright rejection. I'm sure you've heard people say, I don't care whether you're black, brown or purple, I'm blind. So being a psychologist, I suppose I'm more interested in why people say what they say rather than what they say. The script being processed in my head is often the subtext rather than the text. So when we say this particular attribute of you is not important to me, are you saying, you know, your gender or your sexuality or your color or your nationality discomforts me? Are you saying, you know, I don't really want to hear about it because it's not something about you that I accept? The clue in the word care, you know, when you say I don't care, if you don't mind me, if I tell you a little bit about the theological reading of this. In psychology, I said, you know, we have exclusive identities and inclusive identities. And the former is sort of deeply debilitating and damaging and disfiguring to the threats of the sort of human soul in theological terms. It sees the world in zero-sum terms. If you win, I must lose. 
The latter is generous and rooted in theological fruitfulness. Gordon creates the Borg, a homogeneous collective with no name. When humans tried to build homogeneous consensus in Babel Towers, he dispersed them. I like to imagine that it was because the beauty and drama and cosmic choreography of what Balthasar might call the theodramatic horizon lies in our individuality and our uniqueness. So is what you're saying that um, there's a theological significance to our diversity, which means that we honour our creation, we honour the creator by caring deeply about what makes us different and by caring deeply about what makes us unique. And that part of the psychological approach to inclusivity is celebrating that uniqueness rather than pretending it doesn't matter. Have I got that right? Yeah, so God gave Adam and Eve a name. Whenever he changed people's purpose, he transformed their names. It's an important biblical motif. Um, So for scholars who, for example, do a thematic analysis when they're doing a textual analysis, imagine you went through the entire Bible and highlighted the sentences that refer to some sort of identity or belonging, whether it's a people's or a purpose or a calling. The Bible is not about the stories of peoples who belong to a static kingdom. It's not that kind of belonging. We don't talk about God's people sort of staying put and flourishing in a kingdom with clear borders and a clear, coherent concept of who they are as a people. It's a story of a nomadic tribe. If you did an anthropological timeline of the Old Testament, you'll find that quite like God promised Abraham, The world is scattered like stars in the night sky with nations uh, that bind Genesis in this namesake. In the Old Testament, God's people are constantly on the move. I'm not a hermeneutic scholar, but if you understand a little bit about the anthropological shades of culture in the Bible, you will see this ethnographic narrative adopts uh, various expressions of geocultural practices, modes of agriculture and industry, marital or military practices and even cultures of religious ceremonial expression. But the one constant is God, this creative divine who is faithful even when his people were not. And if you look at the journey out of Egypt and trace it on a map, you will see that uh, 40 years was a little insanely long to reach the destination. Because the promised land was not a destination, it was a journey. The promised land was not a temporal place, it was a belonging to each other and you know, within God. It's a trust of a rejuvenated Eden. So the faith is a muscle that can only be exercised in the kind of perma-pilgrimhood that God's peoples had been on. C.S. Lewis suggests that we can only have sight of that extraordinary place that we go when we go through extraordinary hardships. So those of us who've been in those thin places that Lewis calls when you can almost touch that transcendent, we know that we can only find it when we are on that sort of constant fluctuating journey at the very edge of terrifying precipices. You've given us a wonderful overview of the theological significance of belonging within our diversity and that being God's vision for humanity. Let's think about a project which I know you recently completed, the Minority Anglicanism Project. Can you describe the scope of that project and Perhaps just give us an introduction to your main findings. So this is a big question, given the time we have. 
And I often find that a lot of people don't really understand what the project was. It wasn't just an ethnographic narrative of UK minority ethnic peoples. You know, that was certainly a part of it. It was the smallest and the most insignificant of our six studies. And of course, the findings of each study is different. As the research questions were different, the methodologies were different. Some were scientific human subject studies and others were secondary literature studies. Others were interview-based qualitative ethnographic studies. For example, people often called the 42 Diocese large-scale study a survey, but it was a heuristic study measuring indicators of cognitive dissonance indicated by the DSMIV. So to put it simply, a survey is when I ask you whether you're pregnant and record your answer. A scientific measurement is when I devise an instrument like a urine test or an ultrasound to determine whether you are pregnant. And the measurement devices we used were not random instruments. I created uh, there were adoptions of more than 70 years of theoretical modeling and instrument refining. So let me give you an example of the six studies. So one, we did a theology literature review. We examined the fabric of uh, literature in black theology, liberation theology, lamentation literature, and ethnographic narratives of black British experiences. And then we did an, a thematic analysis. We looked at what the emerging, repeating uh, themes were. Then we did an interdisciplinary literature review. Here we looked at the scientific findings within sort of psychology and sociology and political science. Then we did a ecclesiological diagnostics sort of we, we looked at liturgy we looked at the history of the church of england and we looked at how these issues might have emerged because of some of these historical factors we also looked at parallel reports we looked at all the sort of studies that dioceses had done or the national church like CENIAC had done on this issue and then finally, we did a small-scale heuristic interview study that was specific just to the Diocese of Birmingham. And then, of course, the largest and the most significant study was the National Macrobehavioral Study. And that looked at three significant research questions. The first is, does ethnicity affect or limit belonging or flourishing in the church? The second was... Is marginalization experiences self-reported by minority ethnic participants significantly more acute than, say, other types of marginalization, for example, like sexuality and disability or gender? And then we looked at the psychosocial impacts of racialized experience in ecclesial spaces. I wonder if you could give us an example, perhaps focusing on that last area of research, the study in those three particular areas that you mentioned. What were the main findings in that area? What areas of exclusion or lack of belonging or challenges to belonging did you identify? Perhaps you could give us some of the experiences in any of those areas that you mentioned. So we collected a lot of demographic information. So there's a number of very complicated factors that will feed into how people's sort of belonging, you know, the number of years one might spend in the parish and a number of even personal demographics like your age and your gender, lots of other factors beyond colour has an impact. But the question was, does colour have a particular impact to belonging? And the response is, if you are a person of colour or visibly disabled, or if you were openly homosexual, your sense of belonging to a congregation or a worshipping community was more complicated than if you were more homogeneous. Homogeneous is a terrible word, but the reality is there's an imagined concept of homogeneity in churches, even though in reality it's it's much more complicated than that. 
So the picture that was coming across strongly from the study was that colour, among other factors, had a negative impact on people's experience of belonging. And I wonder if, what were for you the main consequences that you see in terms of that negative impact of belonging, in terms of that failure of the church to inculcate the belonging among all its members? And what was the state psychologically, but also what is at stake theologically in that failure? So the consequences for the individual is on a pragmatic level, you know, you can either decide to remain in that church and continue to worship in that church. And that might have an impact on your flourishing. It might even have an impact on your mental health. So the five indicators that we looked at was um, types of cognitive dissonance, uh, compartmentalization, de-individuation, identity distress, etc. But it also means that some people stayed anyway, despite all those really debilitating factors. And some even flourished, not because the environment was a place that loved flourishing, you know, and this is one of the few things study really gave me insight on, but because of sheer bloody mindedness. And they made a success of it. They didn't just make a success of it, they transformed the ecclesia, they transformed the parish. The stories that are far more heartbreaking are those people who left, but that doesn't mean they didn't flourish elsewhere. It just means that the Church of England lost these participants in the congregation. They lost part of their church family. But of course, people went to other churches, to black churches, other minority ethnic churches, or other denominations. You know, it's a well-known secret that the Pentecostal church grew because of the failures of the Church of England. And the question is, do we believe that the Church of England and Anglicanism has something particular to offer the Ecclesia? Do we have theological and liturgical gifts to offer the Christian world? Because we really don't have to worry about the gospel or you know the Christian calling because it doesn't need a marketing manager. It speaks for itself. The gospel thrives everywhere. Where it struggles is when we try to contain or normatively leave out people. And then that particular church shrivels and dies, whereas the Christian world thrives out there. So that is the question we have to really ask. Do we believe that we want the Church of England and the Anglican Communion to grow, or do we want to fragment and fall apart? And it requires real compassion, real understanding, and real hard work to make sure that we do thrive as a church, that everyone thrives as a church within our systems. You mentioned earlier the story of the Tower of Babel and the way in which God judged that, and he wanted the diversity. He didn't want the homogeneity. Am I hearing you say, actually, if the Church of England behaves in such a way, as your study suggests it has done, to move far more towards homogeneity rather than embracing that diversity, it's moving away from everything it's called to be? Yes. So one of the the things that I didn't sort of fully flesh out earlier in my theological ideas of belonging is that um, if you look at how belonging worked in the Old Testament and the New, if you move from the description I gave you earlier of belonging in the Old Testament to the New Testament, in the New Testament, we see God's people sort of set in their ways a little. 
those tabulated rules and perhaps their their very settled, almost increasingly narrowing ways of expressing that belonging was beginning to have an impact. And the Holy Spirit set an upper room on fires, surges around the world, a multiplicity of languages coursing through the body of Christ like the inebriation of a new wine. When the disciples resist the expansion of the Ecclesia, which, which surged like a, a tidal wave, God gently resets their parts in missions to church leaders like Peter, the rock that the church was built on. The church, even our church buildings today, is set on that sort of archetype of a Roman dome. Is it? You know, one of my favorite ecclesiologists, Dom Gregory Dix, who begins his book on liturgy by talking us through the ecclesial architecture of the modern church. He brings home to me the heart of that belonging. The church symbolizes the physical motif of our Domus Ecclesia. So whoever we are, if we regularly, daily, weekly, wash in the same font, eat at the same table, kneel, confess, and rest in the same pews, and are taught and and speak from the same pulpits, are we not family? What does it mean to do all that and then pretend we are two different groups, that we are divided by color? And again, if you trace the development of theology of place and parish ecclesiology of the early church, you'll find that the Paroikas were often non-citizens. They were boundary dwellers. They were refugees. They were the rejected as the parable of the feast tellers. Church is not for just the electoral role. And mostly it is for those who were not invited on the VIP list. So how can we pretend to be strangers if we come home so regularly to this Domus Ecclesia? It's not coming together that erases our differences, but a coming together where the otherness and our humiliated, marginalized rejection can be healed. So despite the grand condemnations of black theology from various quarters recently, for me, its riches are based on what one might call C.S. Lewis's ingenious apologetics of longing. It's because we desire to be together, to belong. When we look at that journey out of Exodus I talked about earlier, We are only in the presence of God when we are lost, you know, with that pillar of fire by the darkest of nights or the pillar of cloud sheltering us from the blazing sun only comes into being in the wilderness for 40 years. You bring particular experience of the Church of England in your present role, Sanji, and our listeners will come from a range of churches. But let's think particularly about the Church of England that you've mentioned. You've written in the last year that there's been an observable change in the attitude of the Church of England's engagement with racism and ethnic identity. In particular, you've described an end to institutionalised silence. And the latest anti-racism report from Lament to Action also acknowledges that we have started to lament, but it highlights that lack of action. Of all the recommendations that that important report has made, are there particular actions that you think will have a powerful impact or could have a powerful impact on our experience of belonging? I think, you know, it would be difficult to pick. They're all extraordinary recommendations. Their recommendations, the task force had a very short time, so they're broad stroke recommendations. And I do hope that the church will spend some very careful time thinking through exactly how it implements it. We're still making decisions on how we're going to deliver everything. And my hope is that all 40 recommendations are delivered, but delivered in some, you know, what what people who work within the national church or within dioceses have is a deeper understanding of how this can be delivered effectively. So I'm hoping that it won't just be 
a virtue signaling blunt instrument, that we will do it with a clear uh, and a compassionate understanding of how some of these recommendations will be received. We have a wide variety of stakeholders in the Church of England, a wide variety of political stakeholders. Uh, you know, it's, it's a complex ecclesia. And I hope the church will take into consideration compassionately the fears and anxieties of all those who resist it, the deep hopes of all those who have waited for these things to come into being for a very long time, and that the wisdom of the Spirit will guide the work. As we look forward, you talk about the important work that the church has to do in this area. And it's not only the Church of England, but that's particularly our focus today. As it does that work, what other theological resources would you commend to thinking, praying Christians as we seek to pursue a culture of belonging? So again, a, a very hard question because I could write you a massive bi- bi- bibliographical list. And there are some extraordinary theologians on both sides of the pond. There are some superb uh, black theologians and you know, black theology is a wide and varied field. There's Within the space that agree on and disagree on, there's extraordinary post-colonial literature. But more than anything else, I would hope that everyone, whether you're professionally in a missionary capacity, whether you're a clergy or mission of some sort, or whether you are laity but have a real stakeholder as, as a part of your family, that you would really engage in this and engage in understanding why this is necessary, that you would engage in the lamentation literature out there, you know, there's excellent books like Ghost Ship, uh, written about the experiences of people of colour, and really spend some time in prayer, in reflection of what it is like to live in the the skin of a person of colour in the Church of England and what that means. We had Aaron Aurora, the co-chair of the Anti-Racism Task Force, come and speak to our students and staff. And one of the things he was saying about the report and the impact it has is he thinks it's moved the church significantly on to say that the experiences of belonging of people of colour is not just a question for people of colour. It is a question for us all. Racial justice is a pressing question for everybody who loves Jesus Christ. I wonder if you could just say why you think really understanding that these are not minority concerns, but concerns for the whole church, why that is something that's so important for us to grasp in this time. The Bible says we are one body. So if your arm is gangrenous or is about to be chopped off, it would be deeply worrying if the feet said, oh, you know, yes, that that terrible, terrible axe is swinging for my arm. But that's okay. It's just the arm. It doesn't affect me. I'm just going to stay put as I am. (laughs) We are one body interconnected. And what affects one affects us all. And I think that is what all of nature tell us, that nothing is a silo. Everything that has an impact on the tiniest, tiniest microbe in your ecology has an impact eventually. So I hope that's a biblical lesson that people will take and really consider what it means to be the body of Christ. I wonder how this journey that you've gone on with this detailed research, now you're bringing into this important current role, 
I wonder where that has left you in terms of your own faith and understanding of the gospel and your own walk with Jesus Christ. How's it enriched it, challenged it, just made a difference to it today? Again, here's an interesting question, and I've been thinking about it a lot in the last six months. So if you told me a year ago that I'd be in this role I am, I would have not believed it. And if you told me five years ago that all that has happened in the Church of England in terms of racial justice was going to happen, I would not have believed it. I pride myself on carefully factoring big data into to models of projections. Projection is a big part of the inferential statistical analysis I do. And everything in psychological and sociological studies on racial justice would say it is a wicked problem too far. It's just not possible to bring about that much change. But between a pandemic, a man who died across the pond that created a movement, a real understanding among people who have had transformed experiences of vulnerability because of a pandemic in this last year. It has changed the public mood. It has changed the heart of the church, I think. It doesn't mean that we're there yet, but I am so filled with hope because the science of it, certainly the science of psychology, would say racial justice in an institution that has the kind of history that the Church of England has just is not capable of that kind of transformative change. And yet, here we are, and the impossible has happened. I mean, if that is not a divine dynamis, I don't know what is. So it has given me hope. It has been a lesson in hope. It has been a lesson in extraordinary heartbreak. Doing that study was difficult. Just reading the material was difficult. Just reading uh, even interview scripts of that tiny study was heartbreaking to hear those stories over and over again. And it did saturate me in despair. But at the same time, that saturation value of despair had to be passed to get to that mountain top of hope. And that doesn't mean there won't be more days of despair. Sometimes it's a daily occurrence and you work in the kind of role I do. But it, you know, there are such extraordinary days when I hear my colleagues, people at the, the most senior levels in the Church of England, so committed to changes that I just think, gosh, that's an extraordinary amount of effort and resources. And to see the church put that front and center and say, no, we are committed to this. It's just stunning. So it's been a journey of hope. That's a wonderful place on which to end that place of hope. Sanji Pereira, thank you very much indeed for appearing on Talking Theology. Thank you very much for having me. You have been listening to Talking Theology, a podcast from Kandahar, Durham. Kandahar is a theological college within St. John's College in the University of Durham, training people for ministry in the Church of England and other denominations. Find out more about us at cranmahal.com.